Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings a human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. The world of startups moves incredibly fast, and I, for one, have found that venture capitalists have a very unique vantage point from which they can synthesize a really deep understanding of what innovation is actually going on. That is literally part of their job. Our guest in this episode, Sarah Guo, is a partner at Greylock Partners, a venture capital firm in Menlo Park, California. In only five years with Greylock, Sarah has already cemented a reputation as a savvy operator that understands what it is entrepreneurs go through and also maintains an impressive network of relationships beyond the C-suite that give her unique insights. I interviewed Sarah on the floor of SumoLogic's user conference, Illuminate. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast, and I'm so excited to have Sarah Guo with me from uh, Greylock. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here, Ben. We're, we're actually at the SumoLogic conference, and she just did a panel with us, so it just seemed like a perfect occasion to sit down with you and talk yeah. to you about what's going on. And when I was actually doing some research on you, uh, I mean, you have an amazing story about you. You're, you're the, I mean, I guess you're, you're still the youngest general partner at Greylock, right? That's right. Tell us how you got there. I mean, how did you get to that point? What's your, what's your story? Sure. So I've been at Greylock for the last uh, five or so years, investing and working with my partners across a whole range of things. We largely do enterprise and consumer technology investments. And I actually was recruited to the firm by two of my former partners, Anil Busri, who's the founder of Workday, and Joseph Ancinelli, who's the founder of one of our companies, Gladly. And I'd gotten to know Anil in my time working at Goldman Sachs and uh, doing the Workday IPO and doing principal investing for uh, for Goldman and just really respected him as an investor and as an operator. Before that, I had been on two different entrepreneurial journeys. So the choice to come to Greylock was an opportunity to be a part of great entrepreneurial journeys across a broad range of technology and try to move the needle for these companies. And five years later, here I am. And what's it, what's it been like so far? I mean, what's most surprised you about that role on the venture capital side? I am constantly amazed at the progress our companies make and the growth that individuals go through against all odds, I guess, right? Because, I mean, you joined Sumo very early. These companies, when we largely invest uh, at the earlier stages. So, you know, many of my companies that I've been privileged to be a part of, it'll be three people or 10 people and an idea and a little bit of, you know, they might have stood up their GitHub instance a few weeks ago, right? And being a part of these companies and just seeing them grow too teams, lead teams of scales they've never done before, grow into different roles, hire great execs, like bring on customers and then user bases that then rely on the products. And just seeing that happen over such a compressed time span, I'm inspired by the journey. And I think like when you when you look at these companies, you you often look around, and you're like, oh my God, that's, that's a real business with like millions of dollars in revenue. And like, we have to make this work now. And so I go to work really excited about that every day. Yeah, and that, that makes sense. And I, that was definitely one of the things I, when I was reading about where people were talking about you, that seems to be one of the things you really bring to the table is you form those relationships. And that that's pretty important to people at that early stage is to be able to get that partnership and that close relationship with someone that can help them to make that transition. So I think that's pretty cool. And I think there's a lot. I, I love being part of our companies when they scale and succeed. And Sumo is now further along in the journey with you know, over a thousand customers and everything. But I think that there's magic that happens in sort of getting the initial product market fit right and getting the beginning of the go-to-market engine right or the distribution engine for a consumer business. I love like working on that first piece. 
it sounds like it's, you're having a lot of fun. <laughs> well, one thing when we were we were talking about a few you know things that we could talk through. I've been interviewing a couple people at the conference, and there's this theme that's you know kind of coming up around trust. You know, and, and in particular, anybody who reads the news is going to know about things like you know Facebook and things like that. But even it seems like there's a higher expectation that people are, are, are thinking about when they're interacting with a company about, do I trust you? Do I trust you with my data? So I'd really be really interested to see how you're thinking about that now. Like, what are you seeing trends in the marketplace and in talking with these startups about trust? So you could have labeled me a cynic in terms of consumers caring about privacy, data, and trust previously. I would have said, like, organizations that serve customers need to do this for risk reasons, for principles, for regulatory reasons, but not that many consumers would have made the decision of who to do business with based on trust and what you did with their data. And I feel very differently about that now. And I think there have been a few watershed events in terms of people just understanding how much data is being collected in order to serve people digitally today. I think one thing that companies are going to have to reckon with and are beginning to reckon with over the coming years is it's not even just a security of customer data or IP problem where like I've got a database of like user credentials somewhere I need to make sure it's not breached and I need to make sure I have like you know responsible encryption and a bunch of different things around that there are so many product decisions that have a security and privacy angle today that I think we're going to see those skills and that thinking embedded in the product organization because that's the only way you're going to make principled decisions about this stuff. And what, what kind of skills do you think are needed there? I mean, what's, is there a gap in terms of the skills that are needed to address those problems? I don't think that there are enough people out there that have the sort of broad range of understanding that you need to have to make these product decisions, right? Like you need to understand data security from a technical perspective. You need to think about the principles of how you want to treat your customers, which is a product and leadership and business question. And you need to understand the regulatory environment, right? And so that's a pretty high bar for somebody making a decision about how should we treat data in this customer application but I think it's something that organizations are going to be investing in. You know, it's, that's interesting you say it that way because I, I was talking to, you know, a leader at a, a cosmetic company and one of the things she was saying, she was looking for polymath, is the way she put it. So, you know, it's people with a broad set of skills where she can teach them the particular skill sets that may be needed for that, that particular business, but she's looking for people that actually enjoy broadening themselves over a range of subjects. I mean, does that, does that make sense to you? Definitely. And I think it's going to be a, a set of product decisions that require trade-offs or investments for the future, right? Because it's going to require companies to say, we won't acquire users that way, or we'll turn away these ad sales, or we're going to take on the overhead cost of storing this data in this way in this location. But I, I do think over the long term, when I said I'm less of a cynic about consumer focus on privacy and trust today, if you look at the surveys around how millennials choose the brands that they want to be in business with or even employed by, I think it matters much more now and that those investments will pay off in the longer term. Well, do, you, do you feel like in that case, do you feel like millennials and does the younger generation in general have a better appreciation for that or is this kind of broader? I mean, how, what's your sense of that? I definitely think a piece of it is that millennials, Gen Z, there's a generation of people that are younger than you and I that grew up digitally native, 
Right. And so they are so fluent with internet services and communication tools and smartphones in that they they just have a better sense of what it means to be surrounded by this technology all the time. And so they're more cognizant of what is happening with their data. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we, you know, one thing, too, is when I was talking to you, you were actually on stage with him, uh, John Visneski over at Pokemon. So w- when we were talking... We were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and, and when I, my seven-year-old, I, I get her playing some games, and I've, I've realized very quickly that there are certain game developers I trust and certain ones I don't, and it, it happened very quickly, because there's, there's a certain game developer that I feel like everything they've come out with is, they're not leading her down a wrong path, they're not showing her the wrong types of things, they're protecting her data clearly. There's a couple other ones where they clearly did not do that. When you're talking with these companies that are starting to build a brand, I mean, how do they build that brand of trust? Because that seems like that's going to be really hard to do. I mean, and once you lose it, it's very hard to build back up. When we invest in early stage companies, at 10 people, you're not going to have somebody who runs security. The point at which people invest in security varies based on the sensitivity and the type of product that they're building. But I do think at a board level with our companies, we talk about the decisions around consumer privacy, customer trust from the very beginning. And so I think the role of the board or Greylock's view as investors is to make sure that we're aligned on the principles of how you treat your customers very early on. And also to give people context as to you don't have to be a very big company to have valuable data and to be a target. And so I think making sure people aren't surprised by that, making sure that they invest ahead and that they're prepared for growing scale and like growing attractiveness to attackers and are ahead of it is one thing that we think about. No, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, sometimes with people, I think I even saw in an article that was somebody interview you, it's like why somebody needs, you know, a venture capital partner. It seems like that's part of it is that you guys have that longer term viewpoint. When you're starting and you're building a product, you're like, I got to build this product. I got to make sure it can actually stand up. You're focused on the engineering, but if you don't think about those, those bigger, longer term topics early on, it can be really hard to correct later on, I would expect. Yeah, absolutely. We are, don't get me wrong, we are growth oriented as early stage investors. Like a company has to get the initial momentum of getting into customer or consumer hands. And that's like, that's a speed of feature delivery and speed of distribution challenge. And so that is definitely the first order focus. But like you said, we want to make sure that's balanced in decision making with what are the risks that come along with it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, you know, kind of switching topics here, one, another thing that you and I talked a little bit, I mean, obviously being at Sumo Logic, I, I wouldn't be here if I didn't love analytics, and analytics comes up a lot. But, you know, I think, at least from my limited vantage point, it seems like there's a change going on. Is When I first came onto the company, you know, this was, uh, you know, over six years ago, really, is big data was the big word, right? You know, everybody was just gathering data for the sake of gathering data, it seemed like, and, and trying to do things with it. And it, it seems like something has is, is changed there, too, because you, you actually have to prove that you can make use of the data, you can actually act on the data, make it actionable, and actually provide value to customers and things like that. So there's a couple different people, including, you know, Ramin, who, who uh, CEO of Logic, is talking about the analytics economy. But it seems to be trying to get around this idea of, can you actually drive value for your customers out of your data? I mean, what's your viewpoint on that? What are you seeing? What's going on from your vantage point? It's a good question, Ben, and it's a topic that we think about a lot internally in terms of thesis areas. We talk to Fortune 500, Global 2000 leaders about 
their technology strategies all the time. Yeah. And one thing that we do talk about is the idea of the, the self-driving business, the model-driven business, or the analytics-driven business, right? Many different terms. And I think one of the reasons everyone is paying attention, and one thing I hear from our partners is, from our corporate partners is like, I don't want to get Amazon or Ubered or Netflix because you see these full stack companies that have a great data stack that allows them to deliver new customer experiences that drive incredible growth or margin in a way that traditionally businesses can't compete with. And so we'll both invest in businesses that have some sort of thesis around consumer or customer data collection that's going to drive a better, smarter experience or better margins. Um, and on the other hand, think about the different ways to enable all of the huge organizations out there today with those customer bases and with those relationships to, to accelerate their journey toward that self-driving business. The challenge, like you said, is people have had a lot of technology leaders have had a less than optimal experience with building out big data infrastructure. And it's just a really hard challenge, right? Like if you're a if you're a hundred thousand person organization that has grown by acquisition and has really old infrastructure and important systems on mainframes, like how do you get there? That's a, there's a lot of work involved. And I, I think like we will invest in data infrastructure companies that are really innovative in helping people fight the good fight to get to that data platform. But I also think that it's important to look for different ways where customers can get to that value faster because the pace of change and competition in business is like nobody, the next internet and AI first company is not going to wait for a global 2000 company to do like six years of data infrastructure build out to compete with them. Well, and I mean, things are moving so fast. I mean, I actually have the time. I mean, that's part of the thing. It's like, you know, I mean, we're, we're only talking about five, six years since big data was the, you know, the big term on the street. Now, now you barely hear it anymore. So it's a, uh, that's really hard to plan for, I would expect, for these larger companies. I mean, you, it's very hard to move that fast, even for a smaller company. Definitely. One thing we think about when we invest in companies is something I also think like large large company practitioners should think about, which is how do we compete in terms of agility? Like one of the core things I look for when investing in an early stage team is pace of iteration. Because your your initial product thesis is more than likely not going to be exactly right, right? And, and part of it is not even like people have the wrong idea. It's the environment changes so fast, like you were talking about. If you think about what has happened just in application and infrastructure monitoring for the last decade, a lot has happened, right? The observability movement has happened. And any area, any fertile market that you look at is going to go through that pace of change. And so we look for founders that are going to keep up with it. They're going to have smart, like fundamentally interesting ideas from the beginning that are secular, like cloud is a thing, yeah. um, but <laughs> also to react to that environment with their product. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, I mean, to wrap up here, so part of, I would expect a big part of your job is this, is to stay on top of the current wave and know where the next wave is going to be. So where are you looking that you think that people aren't really looking at? I mean, where's that, where's that next wave that's just starting to build up that's really good? We're, we're all going to be talking about in the next, you know, three to five years. One area in 
venture capital that I think has been a little bit neglected because people are afraid of the pace of adoption is like sort of real world vertical businesses, right? So that could be anything from construction to manufacturing to real estate to finance and banking and insurance. And all of these areas, often these businesses are, they're not finance, but many of these industries are slower adopters of new technologies for regulatory and structural reasons. So a lot of VCs are afraid of investing in companies that sell into these categories. But I do think there's a sea change both in leaders in these businesses that understand the opportunity of like what is going to be available in the future with data, AI, IoT, and how quickly they need to change their businesses. And it's going to be a challenge for them, but like I guess one point of view would be in any of these industries, and I'm particularly interested in like pharma and biotech, you are going to see people make dramatic business model changes and make dramatic technology investment changes because that is now gonna drive their business and the leaders understand that. I would also say that in any of these areas, there are vertical companies that are trying to attack the entire problem with an interesting technology angle, which allows you, which is a more challenging, I think, initial build in terms of figuring out how to deliver the entire stack of value quickly, but is another path that like, I'm definitely interested in in terms of the reinvention of some of these industries that have been less touched by technology. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on uh, the podcast and uh, I look forward to keeping up with what you do next. Thank you for your time. Great to be here. Thanks, Ben. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.